I'm not governed by the fear of what other people say. You've got to open your heart. Well, number one, he's one of the elite offensive players in the game. What is leadership like in today's football world? Welcome back to another edition of Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show. We are here with the superstar, Matt Breen, Philly's beat writer and newsbreaker extraordinaire. He's been all over the globe this week. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm what, driving what? into the office today, and Angela Cataldi is breathlessly, breathlessly awaiting the arrival of Matt Breen on, on speakerphone. And uh, then he's he just did a, you weren't here, Mike Sielski, but he did a KYW, KYW hit. hit. That's big time. Yeah. That, that I mean, is- that's Matt, when, you're, when Matt Leon is calling up, that's that's huge. But this is the pinnacle to get into this glorious studio with you two award-winning columnists. We, hey, we are a proud Bud Light Lime free podcast. Yes. Okay, so was it a Bud Light Lime can that got thrown at? It was aluminum Bud Light Lime bottle. Wow, those green ones. I mean, I know I know the feeling of wanting to throw a a Bud Light Lime bottle as soon as you get it in your hand, <laughs> but that's usually before it's been drank. Why would you yeah. waste? A, a BLL. Well, let's Bud start. Light why Lime. would you? Why would you order a Bud Light Lime? Like, if you're all right, if you have it in your head, you're gonna throw a bottle at somebody. Wouldn't you at least try to make it a respectable beer? <laughs> I would. Talk I mean, you're gonna be all over the news. Too. You're gonna be all over the news, and you want people. You want to be. You want yourself to be associated with Bud Light Lime. Yeah, like a decent IPA or something. A nice like that. summer day at the park. I will say this. Cracking open at BLL. <laughs> I will say this. We better not ask Budweiser for advertising. That's about right. This podcast. That's right. They we are not friends of the Yingling, podcast. Yingling, yes, anyway, Budweiser. So we've now. got a lot. We've got a lot, a lot, a lot to talk about. It kind of comes in dri- droves, droves, droves. The news drips, drabs, droves. Drips, drabs, droves. We have been talking about. We have literally been talking out of our keisters the last few weeks, but now we actually have news to talk about. Uh, we have Ryan Howard, which is. I mean, like, what do you say about this situation other than? A, Ryan Howard's not good anymore. That's not surprising. We've known this. My dad, every week, every night, sits at the television <laughs> and yells at Ryan Howard. That's the most expensive strikeout in world history. I'm like, and no. this, this makes like, your dad I'm feel like, better? No, dad. The previous one, by definition, was more expensive than this one because now there's more to divide the money by. But anyway. <laughs> Are we sure your dad's not the anyway, this thrower? Is, <laughs> yeah, this is three years now. I mean, this is not a surprise that Ryan Howard's not good anymore. Uh, I don't know why we're throwing bottles at him now. I don't know why we're ever throwing bottles at him, but be, I mean, because it was a fan, short for fanatic, and it's not logical. But you know, it's see, not I a logical thing to do. It's not a rational I, thing to do. I think that we put the emphasis on the wrong thing, and thanks, Sarge Matthews. He's not a he's not a fan. He's a drunk. I think that's what these people are. Like they're they get beer in them, and they don't know how to act. We've all seen people who can't act when they. Yeah, by definition, he's not a, a fan, but. Technically, he's a person Drunk. in a ballpark, so he's a fan. Right, but I'm saying I don't think it's it's his fanaticism Not that's prompting him no, to throw a idiot. beer bottle. I think it's the fact that he doesn't know how to drink beer, or he's just a he's just an idiot. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean it okay, depends. Really it depends on how you want to break it down. Like you can make an argument. Well, he's already a jerk. The beer just allows his full jerkiness to come out. Right. You know, therefore he throws a bottle of beer at Ryan Howard. I will say this. So you asked me this, Mike Sielski, Inquirer columnist. Um, an all-around fabulous dresser. He's got another great <laughs> shirt on today. I'm popping today, fellas. Um, making me look bad. Breen. That's shaggy a low bar to clear. Shaggy as usual. No what is that, a sale? Uh, is that linen? This is an Obey collar shirt. Did you, it's very th- nice. You look like the, you, uh, you, went up to Nant- you look like you went up to Nantucket and took somebody's sail off their boat <laughs> and, <laughs> and put buttons on it and got wrapped nice it around haircut. you. 
good. Anyway. Um, Haters. So, we're going to talk about Ryan Howard. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk maybe – see, the problem is this is Monday. We usually record on Wednesday. Yes. The Eagles are due to report today on Monday and then start working out tomorrow on Tuesday. Yes. So, I was going to say we can talk about Fletcher Cox, but – We run the risk of having it trampled over by But I, pers- I mean, I personally think this is all going to – I think he's going to be – he's going to show up. And he's going to show up too. I mean, you wrote a piece that's on the site now um, detailing that it's either he shows up and gets $7 million or he doesn't show up and doesn't get $7 million. So, you know, what would what, you do? What would you do if you're Fletcher Cox? And, um, you know, like you laid out, there's, there's no reason right now for either party, either Cox or the Eagles, to make a big move at this point. If you're the Eagles, why are you going to, you know, capitulate and give him a free market or a free agent uh, value deal right now? And if you're Cox, why are you going to hold out and, you know, not assure yourself of money that is assured to you? So, so anyway, Matt Breen was was the one. The reason why he's making his rounds on all the talk on the talk circuit uh, this morning is because he and he was one of the few that actually talked to Ryan Howard, um, which you did on Sunday afternoon prior you, to. You know, it'd be interesting if you could, Matt, take us through. Um, how you got the story? We were you and I were talking about this earlier in the newsroom, which is really interesting. I've, one of the things we've the cool pieces of feedback we've gotten about the podcast is kind of the lifting the veil of how we do our jobs compared to somebody who just tweets about something, but and the difference between that and having an opinion versus actual reporting and doing the job. So tell us how you got the story and how it all played out because it was you and Jim Salisbury from Comcast Sportsnet. So Saturday the Phillies lose and uh, I get up from my seat in the press box. And as I'm standing, I see on the field right in front of me that Ryan Howard is grabbing a security guard. And that, that you don't see that a lot, so that's weird. So I'm, I'm watching. Howard's clearly agitated. The security guard doesn't really know what's going on. Howard's trying to tell him. He points to something in the ground. The security guard walks to get that thing in the ground. Howard goes to the dugout. It picks it up. You can tell it was a green aluminum bottle. So knowing what they sell in the ballpark, it's, it's a Bud Light Lime. And... uh you didn't he think walked, it was a can of Barbersol? Well, I confirmed the next day that it was Bud Light Lime. Okay. So he, the security guard throws it out. My instincts, Howard just got a beer thrown at him. So, but I, I'm not going to tweet that because I don't have the proof that it happened, but I'm pretty sure. So we go down the clubhouse, talk to whoever and everybody, and afterwards, Howard's not there. I asked the PR guy, is Howard here? No, he's, he's gone. All right, thanks. So I knew... I, I'm checking Twitter. It's not on Twitter, really. There's no buzz. None of the other reporters saw it. So I had to make a decision. Do I write that this happened, or do I hold it till the next morning when I can talk to Howard and get the full, complete story, knowing that it, most likely it was mine and no one else knew about it. So I decided— So clearly you run it right away without fact-checking. Right. Exactly. This is the 21st century. Exactly. you got to get hit. So, yeah. <laughs> so, now, so now I go home, and I make sure to get up early Sunday morning, get to the ballpark, around 10 o'clock, get down when the clubhouse opens. Howard's not there. I just picture you with one of those like old school alarm clocks. Yeah. <laughs> like the <Pee-wee laughs> Wearing your pajamas. One. Yeah, with little footies on yeah. them. Yeah, and the cap. Yeah. You know. <laughs> a nice breakfast downstairs. <laughs> so I get to the ballpark. Did you get on your knees? I just picture you I saying I said my prayer that I now would I lay me down to sleep. this podcast. I pray the, the Lord. I did. <laughs> I pray the Lord this story to keep. Yeah, keep breaking news, son. You'll, you'll be back here every day. I love this podcast. And so <laughs> I, I get to the ballpark, and as I'm walking in, Howard's walking the other door out. So I'm like, oh, I missed him by, you know, five minutes. And uh, Should have said it earlier. Yeah, so, so I, I hang around, and then Jim Salisbury comes in, and, and Jim has – Jim's like a mentor to all the young Phillies writers. You know, you guys know him. He's a great guy. And he used to work at the Inquirer and 
a really good guy, and he has a great rapport with Howard, a, a much better rapport than I have with Howard. He's kn- known him much longer. And we've done this on the road in Chicago where we kind of double-team Howard and work together to get Howard. And uh, so I said, hey, Jim. Jim wasn't there on Saturday. And if Jim was there on Saturday, Jim would have noticed this because he's a great reporter. So just to set it up, because people – I realize it more and more when I cover baseball that they don't actually know what we do at all. Right. So anyway, three and a half hours before every game, exactly. the clubhouse opens to the media. And when, when, you, when I say open, it like literally opens. Like the doors open and credentialed reporters are allowed to walk around and, and you know, talk to whoever. We're, it's really actually very weird. Uh, it's not like this in any other sport, really. And it's just weird talking to people, like, while they're trying to prepare for their jobs. And yeah. they don't necessarily <laughs> – as they don't mu- necessarily as little like, as they like us. Yeah. As little as they like us to begin with, that doesn't always, you know, Chase Utley doesn't necessarily want to talk to you about his 0 for 13 slump while he's getting into the mindset. Of, right. Yeah. You know, trying to, I, I found the player. Yeah. And I found the players either understand it and get it and are right. totally fine with it, or it is oh, stay away from right. me. You know, there's no in between there at all. And but then, anyway, so that's when we get, but we get, so on night games, we do the bulk of our reporting before the game exactly and right. so you'll read matt green's notebook on you know whatever tyler a, a trade rumor streak. tyler goodell's hitting streak or somebody's hamstring that's all that's all all the quotes most of the quotes you read in the paper are, are got are gathered before the game because the game doesn't end until 10 o'clock and you got to file your story by you know it used 11 to, o'clock. yeah yeah 11 o'clock and getting earlier on the time so anyway you were in you you showed up at the clubhouse before a day and game Sunday on Sunday mornings. You guys know is a dead time, right? Well, to add just to add what Murph said for context sake, because Sundays are generally afternoon games, often media members don't go into the clubhouse before the game because yeah. they presume they'll have time afterwards to talk to whoever they need to talk to. Exactly. The, the whole point like of getting me. there early on a night game is because you're on deadline. This time you're not. So it is to Matt and Jim's credit that they were there before the game began when it's an afternoon game. So exactly. Go so, Dave, Dave Murphy didn't go to the so clubhouse So Jim walks in. <laughs> no, you didn't go any clubhouse. You don't have to talk to anybody <laughs> when you're Dave Murphy. So I tell Jim, I said, hey, you want to help me out here? Look what happened last night. Howard got a bottle thrown. Are you serious, you know? And I said, yeah, you you know, want to help me get Howard hey, and tell serious? him the story. Yeah, and he goes, you you would do that. And I said, hey, I said, we have a much better chance of getting him and, and getting him in a broad, the full context that we did get him if you're with me. So he goes, all right, well, let's do this. So me and him hang out. Maybe twenty minutes later, here comes Howard. Let's it's like go. it's weird. Like when you say get him, it is. It's a lot like hunting. Yes, it really like, is. So these guys, it's like, a game. They, they, yeah. They, so so at home, it's easier to get guys on the road. Definitely. But like getting, like I, I picture people saying, like people still ask. My parents still ask me, "Do you talk to the players?" You know? Yeah, like, I, the same <laughs> yeah. Thing. They have, like they might not even know what get means. So anyway, you're kind of just like hanging out in this vacant club and it's vacant <laughs> yeah, for most of the yeah. time at home because they have like lounges and like video games and and a dining room all you, out of sight of you us. should be so wearing like, camouflage in an orange vest yeah i mean really yeah, exactly so it's like it's kind of like an aquarium like like if you're standing at one of those aquariums and like none of the fish are around mm-hmm. and then they just kind of like dart in and out sometimes and a lot of times they're trying to do it specifically when you're not looking <laughs> <laughs> So That's like true. so like you'll have like you literally have in this three in this two and a half hour window before the game or two hour window before the game you have a 45 second window of opportunity to talk to the guy that you need to talk to assuming that he presents himself at his locker while you're there right. so you and need to like assuming be, he's willing to talk yeah to so you. you're essentially like in a deer in, a, in a, deer, a tree stand like 
just waiting for Ryan Howard to show up. And as soon as he shows up, it's like uh, Oregon Trail. Like, remember when the Buffaloes would come out on Oregon yes, Trail yeah, yeah. and you would have to shoot them? Like, and then they just, like, duck back. And you like, <laughs> ah, I got to shoot a squirrel. Like, Ryan Howard's the Buffalo, and he just kind of, like, comes in, gets dressed real quick, and leaves. And in that period of time, Matt Breen has to convince him to talk to him. And yeah. Jim Salisbury is very good at it. Yeah, and to Howard's credit, he, he talked to us, and uh, he was he was great. Uh, you, all the quotes that I used was pretty much our entire conversation. He, he had long answers, and he was very emotional about it, willing to talk, willing to talk on the record about it. And it was me and Jim walked out of there, and it, it was cool. You knew you, knew you had – because I knew the night before if, if we got this story, it was going to be a big story. And then walking out of there, Jim, you know, thanks a lot, and he thanked me. And yeah, like, and, a, and that's, an, story. that's an interesting dynamic to it, too, is that um, Salisbury is so respected, and rightfully so, on the beat, mm-hmm. that, I, you know, you, I don't want to speak for you, but I can't imagine there would be anybody else covering the Phillies who you would establish that relationship with first, where you would say, like, you had it. You had it by yourself, and you could have tried to approach Howard on your own but you, a, you got a better story out of it because, you know, Jim was there, mm-hmm. and you showed kind of. I mean, and I think only on baseball does this happen. You know, in terms of coverage and beat reporting, where you say, "Look, you know, you're, I respect you because you're here and you're here all the time, and you were the only two guys in the clubhouse before the game, and therefore, rather than me, you know, kind of keep this to myself and have a lesser story because of it, it's Jim Salisbury. It's not Joe Blow from." this radio station or that other newspaper or that whatever entity, you know, I'll be better if it's the two of us together. Cause he's that respected within the club. Well, and there's also Definitely. like a, there's also a little bit of like Jimmy, Jimmy just kind of commands a lot of respect from everybody. Yes. It's so like, if you see Jimmy talking to somebody, no one's going to go over there and like, yeah, butt in. Right. Whereas like if Matt Breen's talking to Ryan Howard, there's a good chance that one of the TV cameras sidles up and tries to like, start. Yeah. do you know what I'm saying? No. Yeah, and that's no slight against you. True. Yeah. No, Jim. Oh, me too. It goes for everybody. Yeah. Jimmy, Jim's just kind of like the Dean of, he's the Don. He's uh, what's, what's her name? Margaret or the boy house girl. The, oh, Helen Thomas. Yeah, yeah. He's like the Helen Thomas of uh, the baseball beat. And I always think she's when, now dead. Though, if you're, so. if you're well, talking to Jim, Jimmy's and, halfway there. If you're talking to Jim and, not just to kidding. you know kiss Jim's butt here, but if I always you can like do that. It's a butt kissing podcast. If, we're, if I'm talking should, to Jim, you should, you and should hear us talk about me, Sam Hinkie. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, yeah. If someone sees me talking to Jim, that buys me some credibility. Right. I just I, Jim, I can't talk enough. Jim's a great guy, and it was I'm really appreciative of how it worked out Sunday. Okay, so so now you've got the story. Mm-hmm. You and Jim posted at the same time online, so you know it's not like one of you broke it. Or no, did. we post. I I did post. We we didn't agree on that. Oh, okay. We we just said don't tweet until you post your story. Which okay. Is, Jim, you know, understands social media great, just like you know all of us do. He says, and and I agree. You don't. There was no reason to walk out of the clubhouse and tweet. Yeah. Ryan Howard said this. Right. No. Let's t- wait write your story. Tweet right. our link. Get, get right. the hits to your website. Sure. Sure. I tweeted it like 15 minutes before Jim did. You broke and, uh, that. You broke that. But we both broke it, and it, it was a. Uh, okay, so so here's so, my where I wanted to go with that is this. So now the story is out on two of the more credible, probably the two most credible entities that cover the Phillies. Mm-hmm. After that, there came to be this situation where um, a photo emerged of someone who allegedly was the person who threw the bottle. Correct? Am yeah. I right about that? Allegedly, yes. Okay. Where did the photo come from? So, um, a fan that was sitting behind the section where this incident happened took a picture of a fan that he said threw a bottle at Ryan Howard, and he, he sent it to four beat writers of the team, not including me. So, I, I didn't see this until 
uh, Matt Gelb, who covers the team, was away this weekend. He texted it to me after I told him, after he saw my story, he goes, oh, look at this. I, 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 he was one of the guys that got tweeted at. And uh, well, is that the guy that threw the bottle? Probably. But in our business and yeah. in life, you probably is not good enough. I'm not, I was not going to tweet that out. I don't care what Philly's video they supposedly have. That's the, not the, my job to do that. Yeah, the, 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 to, to kind of set the context here, the impression was given that the Phillies had confirmed that this was the guy who had definitely done it. And they were kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, soliciting the media's help in getting this guy's picture out there so that he could be found and presumably prosecuted. Am I wrong about that? I, I don't know if you're right or wrong because I, I didn't get asked. Gelb got a phone call about... I, I don't. I wasn't on the phone call, so I don't want to say what was said and exactly, but something about this is the photo if you could tweet it out, I think was along the lines. And he called me and said, hey, I just got this phone call. Do not. And I was like, oh, no, no, like, no way. We would definitely not. And we both agreed, like, never do that. You know, it's just that's not our job. My right. job, I put the story out. If the Phillies want it, they have a way bigger social media reach than anybody else here. So they could tweet it out themselves. But it's and if the or if the police said, this is it. This is our guy. This is a suspect. All right. Then Philadelphia police are looking for this guy. But. Right. Yeah. Right. It seems one of the Phillies writers tweeted it out yesterday. And my first reaction was, man, you better hope that's the guy. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. I mean, it, that's, that's why I wanted to and discuss he did say it. The Phillies had confirmed it. Yes. But the Phillies had confirmed what? I that know they, that they think this is the right. guy. Yeah. Unless I see video of him throwing it. But until then, right. I, I, it's just, it's right. not worth and it. And never mind the ethical, you know, from a journalistic standpoint, the ethical ramifications of like. Legal. The, yeah, and legal, of like the team asks you to do this, therefore right. you do it. Like, no, I don't work for the team. I, I'm not an empl a Phillies employee. Um, I'll choose to do that based on my own standards of what my, what my paper slash media entity wants wants me to do and what's proper for me to do and yeah but record, i got this I mean, wasn't a story until it, we left the clubhouse and then it was a story it, it, if we didn't get in the clubhouse and talk to ryan howard on sunday morning right i'm not trying to like pump my chest right. or brag it, factually this would not this would not be an issue today right you can pump your chest yeah maybe you I deserve am. it thank you so yeah so we want to talk about that i guess we did talk about that yeah but uh, yeah my I, thing with ryan howard is I don't think that it's smart to cut him just to cut him, but at the same time, you, you do wonder whether this keeping him around just may, just brings is, is worth more negatively than it's worth positively yeah, in terms of preserving his legacy. I mean, he, the whole reason you wouldn't want to cut him is because you know, he's one of the best players in franchise history. You don't want to cut a guy like that. Well, you also don't want to keep him around if like he clearly can't play anymore. But yeah, that's kind of been the case for you know. Yeah, I've heard the argument advanced that. The Phillies should cut him because if they don't cut him, and no matter when or how much they play him, the possibility for incidents like this are going to escalate. You know, the idea if you keep running him out there, then fans are going to be upset, and therefore something like this is going to happen, and it already has happened, which to me is not a justifiable. Like, you either cut him because you say, from a baseball standpoint, we are fully invested in Tommy Joseph now as our first baseman, or you keep him around because... As Murph, you know, and I were talking about before the podcast, you know, if if Ryan is rolling with it and is okay with it and doesn't, you know, is being a mentor to Joseph and other guys and, you know, the Phillies are getting something out of paying him $25 million and he's all right with sitting on the bench, then that's fine. But the idea of like, 
Well, the Phillies should cut him because otherwise, if they don't, the possibility exists that someone will act like an idiot and throw something at him or he'll get booed. That's not a reason to cut him. That's, That's not going to happen anyway. Yeah. I think you, we, I, we all grew up in the area or, you know, local and, uh, that's not Philadelphia sports fans. I know it's a bad rap, and but that's not that's not a he's, Philadelphia like you sports said. Fan. He's going to get a standing ovation exactly. the next time he plays. This is this woke up Philadelphia that's been booing Ryan Howard all season. That okay, the booing might have been fun for the fans for a little bit, but the booing got to the point on Sunday or Saturday where a fan throws a bottle. So now let's show the national media, the local media, every, Ryan Howard himself that that's not what we're about. I guarantee you, the rest of the season he's they're going to be celebrating everything he's done instead of uh, looking at the last, you know, few years. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right about that. And, um, you know, I mean, it's a shame in the one regard that it's gotten to this point. Um, you know, I mean, you guys are both around the team, certainly Matt, you know, Mur Murph, maybe not as much as around anymore just because of the nature of your job changing. But, uh, you know, it's sad that it's gotten to this point that we're even kind of having this discussion. And that's a function of the contract. That's a function of his performance. That's a function of the team's overall performance, but it is what it is. And, and I'm kind of along the lines with you guys that cutting him for the sake of cutting him in a way, I've said this before, it's kind of disrespectful in a way, like you've got to find a way to make, to make this end as uh, comfortable as possible for all parties. And I'm not sure just cutting him loose is the way to do it. Yeah, I mean, just from the for the fact that he has not been the worst player on the team this season, as bad as he has been. I mean, they've they've gotten rid of Emmanuel Burris, uh, Cedric Hunter, David Lowe, Darren Roth, and and frankly, all of those guys probably deserve to go ahead of Ryan Howard. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, may, I mean, I guess you could make an argument for Roth. No, you don't agree. I don't Green? know. I, I I mean, the numbers. Cedric Hunter was three for thirty-three. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, sure, but Cedric but I'm saying Hunter's like, how do you? But how do you, how do you like why why cut, they're not keeping him around? It's not like they're keeping him around, you know, when they could be giving his roster spot to somebody else. Yeah, at this point, you Tommy Joseph, if if you commit to Tommy Joseph as the starting first baseman and Howard does accept the role, like he said he accepts right. the role, then I agree, it's no point. Yeah, but on the flip side, I know Darren Ruffs had a ton of chances here, and I'm not like one of these Darren Ruff truthers that think Darren yeah. Ruff's going to be great. But in the long term, Darren Ruff has a chance of being a part of this more than Ryan Howard does. So I would rather see Darren Ruff be the backup first baseman than Ryan Howard be the backup. I've, well, I've I'd rather see Darren Ruff fail. I thought that's on my drive into that. I'd rather see Ruff fail than Howard succeed. Not from a, a Philadelphia historical standpoint, just from a running a baseball right. team. Because at least you know, okay, Ruff failed. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, they have they've. Darren Ruff just is not in the cards for them. Like they, they should to me. Like they should have been starting him last year when they were starting Ryan Howard. You know, and I'm the same way yeah. with you. And Darren Ruff, for whatever reason, is one of these polarizing figures in in local sports because that's what it's gotten to. That's what we have to argue about is Darren Ruff. Yeah. But uh, same thing every. You year. know, I would always say, why aren't they playing Darren Ruff? And people would say, oh, yeah, yeah, Darren Ruff's not. Good. I'm like, I'm not saying he's good. I'm yeah, just saying that's that, not like, the point. The, the point, point is, is you like, find yeah, out what you have in him. Yeah, and the point is, like, why not just play him instead of Ryan Howard? He's young. He's got more of a chance of being good in three years than Ryan Howard, even if it's 1% to 0%. It's still 0%. But anyway, I've kind of gotten over that, and, and they've already – took a For while. whatever reason, two different regimes have decided Darren Ruff does not belong in the major leagues, and whatever. At this point, I just don't see – so Darren Ruff is probably the one. But, like, I mean, you can't – like, if you cut Ryan Howard when you could have cut Emmanuel Burris or you could have cut Cedric Hunter or you could have cut David Lowe, it's like – you just cut Ryan Howard just to cut Ryan Howard. Yeah, I'm not going to argue life and death that 
Well, I know, but I think that's what I don't get. Spot. Right, I don't get the sense that the Phillies are are. I think they've already made their peace with the Ryan Howard thing. It's clear what it is. If he's happy with it, keep him around. But like, I think if there's a better option, they're going to do it. That's I don't right. think that's this is not. Yeah, this is not the same situation as 2005 when Jim Tomey was right, blocking exactly. yeah, Ryan yeah. Howard. You know, if you cut Jim Tomey, um, you know, you're you're losing. You know, he's blocking a guy who needed to play. Right. If you cut Ryan Howard now, you're not you're not. There's nobody blocking there. Like right. you're blocking a pinch hitter. You yeah, know. You have to now. You got to find a backup first baseman. Yeah. So at this point, if this is the way they're going to do it, I have no problems from a baseball standpoint and from a Philadelphia sports. You know. But can this last? Legacy the, standpoint. I guess the question is, at some point, and I think the reason why so many fans want to see him cut is because it's uncomfortable for fans to watch. Whatever. Well, I mean, look, I think those of us who remember and covered and watched Howard when he was great, you know, oh five, oh six up through, you know, maybe a little bit before the Achilles injury in, in the 2011 LDS, I think we see Ryan Howard and we watch him strike out and we think, oh, remember when he was hitting 58 home runs and how great he was right. in the playoffs, that sort of thing. I think, you know, the younger generation may not remember that all that well. And they kind of, why are they running this guy out? He can't play, you know, he's never been good, that sort of thing. Yeah, but I think it's more the older, I don't think the younger generation necessarily pays attention to baseball. Um, I'm talking about the younger generation, generation of like, fans who do. I'm talking about guys like my father's age or like your father's age. Like I think that like it just uh, I think that I think most of those guys get it though, don't you? I mean, I think that's who's caught up with it because they can't get past the money aspect mm. of it. Yeah, I think I think the money's a big part of it, and I think I just think I think to to, to a lot of people he symbolizes the downfall. But I think also it's just uncomfortable for people to watch. Like, yeah, they, they don't like watching. It's not that he's ruining his own legacy. He's ruining our memory of him. That's true. And you know I, what I'm saying? And I do think they miss the part. It's pride. It's like, it's actually the same reason why Sam Bradford didn't come to OTAs is the same reason why people, do you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like pride. It's like you're, you're, you know, you're making yourself look bad. Yeah. You know? But I do think the other part of it that people miss who make that argument is there's kind of this implicit, Ryan Howard's getting paid $25 million. He should just do better or try harder because he's making $25 million as if that was a switch that could be turned on and off when in fact the Phillies paid him $25 million, decided to do that at a time when they shouldn't have done it. And the fact that he's making $25 million and can't hit, that's not like, that's not, in a way, it's not Ryan Howard's fault that he's being paid that money right. for what he is right now. But I do, I feel like people who look at it and say, well, this is terrible, you know, you, I don't mean to say your father is terrible, but like, there's the most expensive strikeout right. ever. Well, that's on the Phillies. That's not on Ryan Howard. The Phillies gave him that yeah. contract. And frankly, I think that this is, honestly, the story has been talked about way more than people actually care about it. Like, I think most people, like, I think it's been the last couple of years, people, have, people went through the whole... Ryan Howard hate thing last year, maybe. Now I think they get it. Like, again, it's like, all right, whatever. He's here. They've turned the page. Mm -hmm. I think there was a lot more vitriol towards him when he, when the Phillies were still kind of clinging to this notion that maybe he and the rest of the team might yeah. catch he's, the Yeah, He's the, the only thing there, like, I think, right now that you can get upset about. But, like, are the boos overwhelmed? Like, I, I didn't get the sense even last year that the boos, like, they, the boos were not deafening when, when no, he would, I mean, there would be, no like. no one in the crowd. No, well, yeah. But, I mean, it was. The boos were present. I don't, I wouldn't say deafening, but they were. He he would get booed if he struck out, you know, again and a yeah. low but, inside slider. But that's just it. Is that he's the only representation of that now? It would be one thing. It was one thing in 2012 and 2013 and 14 when this is still a veteran laden team with really expensive guys 
and it's not performing. And there's Jimmy Rollins, there's Chase Utley, there's Cliff Lee, there's Jonathan Papelbon. There are all these guys who were accomplished at one time or another, and now they're not performing. And boo to them. Now it's Ryan Howard and a bunch of guys in their early 20s who we don't know very much about and we're trying to find out about. So even though the team isn't very good, it's like, well, we didn't expect them to be very good. So if we're going to get angry about anything, let's get angry about the guy who's getting paid $25 million and doesn't hit. Yeah, right. him and Chucha are the last two remnants of the uh, you know the glory years, and Carlos Ruiz is already a backup, so Ryan Howard looks like he's going to be playing the same type yeah. of role. I, I don't think and, – and that the page was so clearly turned within the last year, that's a lot of that – um, anger has been taken away too. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. So what about the draft? I know, I know your colleague Mac Elb has kind of been the one. Yeah, he's been all over the place, making the rounds. Um, but how many, how many stories has he written? I saw AJ, AJ Puck. He's written what was it six? Kyle seven? Lewis, Jason. Because we had a freelancer in California do two stories, so I think all together it might be eight stories. Well, let's start there because that over wrote about uh, Groom. So, so. Uh, the latest mock drafts are out, and the, kind of the two sources I always go to here are Baseball America and ESPN's Keith Law. Uh, they seem like they have their the, the best feel for for where everything slots, and both are saying, or at least Baseball America is saying that Mickey Moniak, a high school prep fielder from Chaminade Prep, which is in San Diego or right outside, is kind of the 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 one option one a and the one b is is puck from florida i mean i think baseball america went so far as to say that in fact they did say that that the phillies have narrowed it down to those two players and it's going to be one of those two uh do you have any insight on this at all i know you're not really on that yeah end of the beat right now um if i had to bet on it i would bet that pucks the guy i think that's a safe bet you need a left-handed pitcher going forward He's a college guy, accomplished just like Nola. You know, one of the best pitchers in pitchers in college. Just like Joe Savory. Yeah, exactly. And then you have a, you could have AJ Puck in your rotation next June if he if he follows the Nola path. And I don't think there's any reason to not pick him. But well, the reason is he's not. The, the reason is that he's not a consensus number one, and that, that would be. I mean, if. I mean, he's not. Yeah, but I mean, there the is reason no is consensus people, number there, one. there are people who right, but but the reason is. If you're t- if you're going to inherit the, the thing, it would be if you're going to take on risk, why not go for the most upside? You know, right. like if you the if whole there's point not a consensus number one, the everyday player you you take could help you more. Right. Therefore, take the everyday like the, player I guess what I'm and take the chance a, on him rather than taking there, the chance on the young pitcher. If there's yeah. like a, if there's like a non-negligible risk that AJ Puck net like never even establishes himself in the major leagues. Like what, the whole thing with Noel is like he he was regarded as having being the safest player in the draft pretty much right. the entire draft. Like he wasn't regarded as having huge upside. And I think we see it now. I mean, he's a great pitcher, but he doesn't have a 95 mile an hour fastball. And he's, you know, he's, he's just never going to be Kershaw. You know, he's right. never going to be Matt Hart. I mean, Matt he's pretty Hart. close numbers wise. He's, well, that's he's what I'm saying. Numbers. This year, I know, yeah. but if you just watch him, right. You're like, all right, he's not Strasburg. He's not, you know, Kershaw. He's not Scherzer. Um, he's not an all time great, I guess you would say. Um, but, he was almost certain. like there was no ever any doubt, no matter who you talk to, that Aaron Noll was absolutely going to be a number f- at least a number four starter in Major League Baseball. Now it's looking like he's probably a number two. You yeah. Know? Um, whereas Puck, there's like a question as to whether he's ever going to command his fastball consistently enough to be even that. I I agree. Uh, you know I, I I'm not. So then gonna, the thought the thinking would be thinking would be in- what kind of upside are you getting for your risk? And if you're gonna if if there's you know. 
if the risk is almost the same or in the same ballpark that, you know, this college pitcher never establishes himself versus this high school hitter, why not take the hit, the guy with the more upside? Yeah, and I think this front office has done, up to this point, a great job of building for the future. So with this being their first pick and their, their first draft, I trust them to – yeah. I told Matt Clentak this in Detroit. He he asked. Did he say thanks, Matt? No, he that just really, asked, That's really important asked, to me that I have your he trust. Asked <laughs> what the what the Philadelphia fans are? How are they going to react? Who are they thinking they pick? And I said, and I think I have a good read on the fan base, being from the city. And I I said I, I think people trust you guys because you haven't screwed up yet. Right. right. This is your first draft. There's not a track record of like. Jeff Jackson, uh, Anthony Hewitt, yeah. they're going to screw right. it up Joe again. Savory, right. So I think whatever pick they make is you, you trust it. You hope that's the right pick, and uh, and and part of that too way, is they can't miss. They're not going to miss on the first pick. But and plus, part of that too is that people generally, number one, people don't pay as much attention to college and high school baseball players who you know right. n- nobody has an opinion on AJ Puck compared to. Ben, ben Simmons. Simmons. Exactly. That's you what know, I told him, too. You know, and the other part of it is is that, generally speaking, baseball players take longer to get to the top level to you know play at the majors than an NBA draftee would take to get to the NBA. Well, the other part of it is, you're, again, it's, it, none of these guys are secrets. Everyone kind of sees the same thing when right. they look at yeah, it. Yeah, we've it's, talked it, about this At some before. point, it's just, a, yeah. it's just you know, a crapshoot. And yeah. you got to, you know, it's is this guy going to flame out or that guy going to flame out? You know, because one of them, the odds say one of them, is going to yeah. be a quote-unquote bust. Yeah, you and know? It, Murph, Murph, you, Murph, have made this point on the podcast before, and it's a good point, which is that no, th- there's no great secret anymore. You know, right. there's so much... Uh, everything, all information is available now. You know, it's not like a, a scout right. is bird-dogging somebody exactly. on Guam to find him and bring him <laughs> over to, to play baseball in the major leagues. There's video on the guy from Guam, well, too. And Everybody's that, seen him. Like, when, 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 when the scout, when scouts were, like, these legendary figures, and, you know, Pat Gillick was one of these guys. Mm-hmm. It was that they knew where to look, that right. nobody else was looking. It was that they, like, you know, that they, they, they had all you were, all anyone had to go on was numbers, which were completely unreliable when it comes to high school, pit, and really when it comes to college, too, and your eyes, you know, like, so there was there was a chance that if you heard of a guy in like Laredo, Texas, that that you know could touch ninety seven on a good day when he you know yeah. got enough nutrition in his system, then like Pat Gillick would show up and be like, I like the way this guy's fastball moves. Trust me, it moves. But he's the only one who's ever seen his fastball. Whereas now, like you can watch anyone. All these guys are playing circuits. All these guys are. You know, there's no like I said. There's no secrets. But it's it's part of the reason why in 1985 when Sports Illustrated published the April Fools issue with Sid Finch. It's part of the reason people thought that was true was because, well, scout. How would we know otherwise? There's no YouTube, right. you know. If if today if you point. tried that, people would be you know googling Sid Finch exactly. and saying, well, well, he doesn't exist. Nobody's written it. You know, Keith Law doesn't have an opinion on him. How could he possibly exist? Well, it's like on these, Twitter that's fake in five minutes. Right. Yeah. So I mean, on what you're doing is 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 a. It's it's how you're how you're measuring the risk. You know of you know what's the risk this guy flames out what's the risk this guy flames out and then after that you're just kind of it's what what fits your system would you rather err on the side of upside or err on the side of risk and a lot of it now is negotiation too with the draft pool i mean that's what we're hearing is that that the the phillies would would love to be able to save some money save some scratch on that first guy so that they could then maybe sign a guy you know who otherwise would go to college but if if you can throw a couple more million dollars at him maybe he won't go to college they did that last year too with their first their first pick when randolph they saved a lot of money on him 
Nero spread it out through the rounds and, and signed some guys. Greg Pickett was a high school outfielder, probably mm-hmm. would have went to college, gave him a nice bonus. And I think that's definitely what they'll do. And then past the draft, um, you have the international signing pool. They have the most money to spend. Mm-hmm. So they're going to you know, spend a lot of money in the international market this offseason, I mean this summer. And then besides the number one pick in the first round, you have the number one pick in every single round. So it's, right. it's you, they can, they're going to have to hit more than just a number one pick. Yeah, and it's, 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 again, something that fans forget is that they see spending money only in terms of player salaries at the major league level when what the Phillies have done really since the new regime has taken over and probably even before that, I think. Yeah, going back for a while now. You know, is really spend well. more on infrastructure, um, you know, more scouting in you know, Latin America and places like that, you know, more spending to sign guys, you know, sign amateur players, things like that. So Baseball America says Pat Gillick is, quote, said to favor Moniac, the high school prep outfielder. And, and Gillick's word carries a lot of... Definitely. He apparently has been a, a fixture on the uh, on the trail. He's almost been more like a, a special assignment scout for them. They've had almost everybody out this uh, for this pick. Had you know all their guys are out looking at players, not just um, the the uh, amateur scouting people. Mm-hmm. And I mean that's what you want. You want as many eyes on guys as possible. You know, because in the end it's going to come down to to making an imperfect decision. You know, with an imperfect player is what Definitely. it comes down to. And, and Keith Law mentions a couple of guys who they might target later. Uh, I mean, with their second round pick. Who who they wouldn't really ordinarily be able to target if they if they didn't save some money on the top pick. Um, and one guy's name is Joey Wentz. That would be great. Sounds it? like a yeah lefty big, like a big lefty pitcher. Sounds, yeah, yeah. South Philly would go Gaga. Well, that's the thing is like that, and that's why t- talking about the draft frankly isn't all that stimulating. Even though we've done it for you know fifteen minutes here because nobody actually sees these guys. Like yeah. I, we all have opinions on college football players because we've all seen them. Exactly. You know? Same thing with college basketball players. And at and this the, point, like the hockey draft, how we all really want to know who the Flyers are going to pick. I couldn't even tell you one guy. <laughs> <laughs> who yeah, are they going to pick? I'm just kidding. I have no clue. We have right. no. I have no idea either. I love the Canadian juniors. Are you going to be doing any Eagles this year? Uh, once Phillies runs out, I'll also do something. So I'm sure I'll be filling in and, you know, showing up at games and right to six sidebar. What uh, did you take anything last week away from practice? Are you going uh, down there all this I'm week? I'm trying to think. Um, just the, the idea, and, and we kind of talked about it a little bit, just how superfluous Chase Daniel is. Yeah. Um, you know, I wrote a column about this last week. Like, why is he here? And you read some of the blogs, you know, saying, well, there's a reason he's here is that he knows Doug Peterson's offense and he's going to teach it. And, you know, what happens if Sam Bradford gets hurt? Well, if Sam Bradford gets hurt, then you you put Carson Wentz in and you just move forward with what you're going to end up doing anyway. You don't need Chase Daniel here for that. And as Murph has pointed out in the past, if – Doug Peterson can't teach his offense to Sam Bradford and Carson Wentz, and he needs Chase Daniel here to do that at the cost of, what, $7 million a year under the salary cap? Then that doesn't portend very well for Doug Peterson as a head coach. Um, The idea that you kind of needed to bring along this security blanket with you to help assimilate your players into your offense. I just don't get it. That, that's what I took away. And Chase seems like a very nice guy and, you know, was, is fine to talk to. He's a good interview. But the fact that the Eagles felt they needed him here, I, I just don't see it. Is there, as a, an outsider to the Eagles right now, but is there a chance that Sam Bradford could get traded still? Because that's my – if I had to predict without, you know, having what you guys have, the insight, I'm guessing that Sam Bradford still finds a way to get traded and that Chase Daniel is your Doug Peterson and – Carson Wentz is your Donovan McNabb. That's the only way I think this works, um, is if somebody gets injured, 
or something happens, let's say, with the Jets and Ryan Fitzpatrick, which is still a long shot anyway because they've got three other quarterbacks there who are young and cheap. But somebody gets hurt, they can move Sam Bradford, and as you said, otherwise, keeping Daniel here makes no sense to me. I, yeah. I don't know how Murph feels about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think keeping him here, you, you have to keep him here now that you signed now that him. you've signed him. Yeah, yeah. But, I don't. But my point is, what is the point of him being oh, I, here to begin? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. But yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a valid question and probably one that I haven't thought of, thought enough about. Um, I mean, here we are. I was about to say, we'll see what happens after June first, but here we are. It's after June first. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's. I, I mean, Den, it's, I still look at Denver, and I find it really hard to believe that yeah. they're going to enter a season with Mark Sanchez as, as, as the starting Lynch, cornerback. Yeah. And it's, you know, not just Mark Sanchez. I mean, Mark Sanchez can get hurt. He's a, he's a, he's a fragile guy. I'm not fragile guy, but he's he's, he's been hurt he's in small, the past. He's a smaller guy. Sealski you know? loves Mark Sanchez. Oh, I know he does. No, Sealski does not love Mark Sanchez. If Sealski had a blog, it would be, I want to run shirtless in the rain with Mark Sanchez. Well, and Sam Hinkie. And Sam Hinkie, Mark Sanchez. www.shirtlesswithsanchez.com. If you could take Three, if you could take three people, historical people, Jeff Francoeur. Yeah, guy. that's the other one. That's right. It's the Blessed Trinity his right buddies. there. If Hinky, Francoeur, and Sanchez. If you no. could take three historical figures to dinner, it would be Abraham Lincoln, Mahatma Gandhi, Mark Sanchez, and <laughs> uh, uh, Jeff Francoeur. There you go. Um, I love how the podcast always really devolves into it, it. Murph turns this from guys Sealski knows well to guys Sealski loves. Well, Tannenwald's not here, so we got to bust your balls. That's instead. true. <laughs> <laughs> Are we allowed to say balls on this podcast? Uh, we just did. All right. Basketball. There goes our, our sponsor that we don't have. Um, I'll, I'll bleep it out. Yeah. But no, you're right. Like, why would Denver, I, I mean, I guess because he's cheaper, Denver wants to roll with Sanchez compared to Bradford. But if Sanchez gets hurt, maybe something that, but yeah, so I think that's, is it too late though? That's the other thing. Is it too late to trade for a guy and have him learn the offense? Or, I don't know. Or, you know, cater the offense to him, whoever you do. Who I would think for. if a deal was going to get done, it would have already gotten done. But. Again, I you know I don't necessarily know either. I'm not going to pretend that I know because in the NFL you dress two quarter two quarterbacks, right? right. Yes. Or or you, I guess you dress three, but two can play. So you you drafted you traded up to get Carson Wentz, and Carson Wentz is going to be your third quarterback. Yeah. That that doesn't see that doesn't make any sense. That's why I think there's a move coming, and he's he's got to be the backup. I would think. I I don't think it's no too one, late. Has it I, ever I, happened? I, has anyone ever I mean, drafted a quarterback that high and not had him? I no, at least I've yeah I've crunched the numbers on this that the last ten years there have been eleven quarterbacks taken in the top three of the draft just like Wentz was nine of them started week one one of them started by week five Blake Bortles and the eleventh was Jamarcus Russell yeah so there you go it's you know so and the Eagles like we've talked about the Eagles just fired a head coach whose whole reason for being was like to break from conventional wisdom. So the idea that they're going to break from conventional wisdom now with Peterson and Wentz, it, it's ridiculous. It's, I don't think it's going to happen. I'm not saying Wentz is going to start week one, but he's going to play soon. I yeah, think. I agree. Yeah, so to answer your question, I think that there's, yeah, I think that there's still probably more of a possibility than any of us have really, you know, given credit. I think, I mean, really it's training camp is when, yeah. that's kind of the, the do or die date. I mean, yeah. Sam Bradford didn't really practice at all last year at this point. And, uh, I mean, the Eagles didn't even acquire him until a month ago or right. this time last year. Right, You know, and, and training camp and, and the, the preseason is going to be fascinating because we remember, you know, everybody lost their minds after the second preseason game last year when Bradford went 10 for 10 against Air, you know, dressed like the Green Bay Packers defense right. and, uh, you know, Super Bowl visions and all that stuff. And well, that's if, what this – our colleagues who watch these mini camps and then declare guys to be, you know – 
winning certain competitions. Like it's just ridiculous. Like first of all, practice. We talk. We talk about practice. Not the game. Not the game. Not the game. Practice, and not just practice. We're talking about practice against two different defenses. So you're comparing Sam Bradford, like the one practice. So we. So the first of all, we were up up till this week. We were only allowed to watch one practice a week. So the Eagles have practiced. I think I, I went back and counted. Yeah. They've practiced something like twelve to eight, twelve to fifteen times, and and we've been allowed to see three. We at some point we'd been allowed to see three of those. You know, so not only are you watching a dollop of a sample size, you're watching when you're actually watching practice, even in training camp. The number one thing is there's no live rush. So so unless you have a stopwatch out and you're timing how long it took the quarterback to get rid of the ball. It might have been an awful play that eighty-yard bomb that you thought stole the show in practice. Like he 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 might have right. been, he might have held he the might ball have been long- picking himself yeah, up he off might the have ground been, held, on that play. Held the ball longer than is like conceivably possible for him to even get a pass off. This is why like this is why frankly teams <laughs> close their practices because they're like we can't trust you to watch this and yeah. not act like an idiot. You know, like <laughs> people are here, sitting here saying Sam Bradford's struggling to pick up the offense. How, you know, how do you know that? You know, right? But anyway. Um, but not only that, you're watching uh, you're watching Carson Wentz play against the third string exactly. Eagles defense. You're watching him play against a bunch of undrafted free agents. You got it pretty to be much. bagging groceries. Next I week. know. And, and meanwhile, you're watching Sam Bradford play against you know. It, it's just the whole the whole the whole thing. They're starting defense. Yeah. yeah. Place at the table, starting defense. Program, the program, the program. I've, it used to be on TV. Latimer, I've yeah. seen minutes of it. I've never seen it. Before I know of time. it. Never saw it. So World anyway, Giants? what else? Uh, what else do you want to talk about, Breen? What do you think about Jared Eikhoff? Let me ask you that. Do you think he's a major league starter? Yeah, I, I think he is. He's probably a back end rotation guy. He's got a nice curveball. Um, another. Well, guy I know he's got a nice curveball. I'm asking, do you think? Yeah. Do you I, think he's got enough on? Can he be a two pitch starting pitcher well, no, you, when he's you, got a fastball? You, you need to add that third pitch, just like Noel is, you know, consistently Fiddling working the on the changeup. Change yeah. But um, I think he's another young guy that's kind of taken his licks, but. He still looked good at times too. I, I think it's too early to say he's not a major league starter. He seems particularly. Maybe this is just me projecting something onto him, but the idea that guys are too fine because they know the offense isn't going to produce a whole lot of runs, all that many runs. He seems. It seems like just watching him that that kind of preys on him a little bit. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe um, you know. It just seems like he presses. A little bit. <laughs> what? what is this? Murph is calling up something on the computer. Starting defense. Place at the table. Woo! Um, Murph has called up a clip on YouTube. Yeah, of I the program. think it's got to be hard for a pitcher I didn't think that was on the Phillies to, you know, to go out there knowing you're gonna, you'll be lucky to get three runs tonight. What uh? It's really, margin errors, razor thin. So how do they get the? How do they make the offense better? Like what's coming? Your boy Nick Williams has been struggling a little yeah, bit. Yeah, he's been he? struggling. Um. J.P. Crawford's not hit, tearing the ball off at Triple A, uh, but Aaron Altair could be back in a month and a half. Maybe. Oh, really? Is that what they're saying? Yeah, he's progressing fine. The timeline hasn't changed, so I think that the original timeline is sometime in July, July or August, to get him back. So that could be your, you know, your offensive at the trade deadline. You, you add him, Cody Ashy maybe could uh, start producing a little bit more. Maybe Jimmy maybe. Uh, Paredes, Paredes, however you say this guy's name. He uh, he had a home run yesterday at two hits, and that's the guy that Pete McCannon said after the game was, you know, one of the guys that they brought in for a reason. So, well, all right, then. Cr- I mean, crusty old Frank Fitzpatrick had a good tweet. Clearly, they're uh, good. About great tweet. Great uh, tweet. Teams that sign parades don't hold parade. Yeah, <laughs> don't hold don't them or parades. something like that. <laughs> that was. Great. Sounds like morning bites material. 
Oh, that's a throwback. Wow. That's a throwback. Way in the, deep in the Wayback Machine there. That's not that long ago. I missed it. I wish I was working here when we had that. I guess the, the one other thing we could talk about is Muhammad Ali, since we, yeah. that apparently has not outlived its shelf life yet. But but you've got, I, I know you've you've got some, I mean, you actually saw him, right? Muhammad Ali? I mean, I saw him briefly at the end of his career when oh, okay. I was six. Yeah. Um, I just find it, I, I find it fascinating that the, the, the differences in the way, A, that he was covered, and B, kind of the way that well, no, sports... You brought that up. What, what do you mean by different... Well, just the access that right. um, Dave Kindred, the longtime sports writer, uh, Washington Post, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Sporting News, Sporting News uh, he got his start at the Louisville Courier-Journal when uh, Ali, then Cassius Clay, was coming up. And so he's known he had known Ali virtually all his life. And... He, he literally got in bed with Ali once to work on a story. Like, Ali had writers and camera crews in his bed, in his hotel room once. And Ali knew him well enough that he, like, lifted the sheet up and Dave got in wearing a golf shirt and khakis. Um, Imagine if that was Mark Sanchez. <laughs> wow. Um, Silski wouldn't be wearing khakis for long. <laughs> you guys are terrible. You guys are just awful. Um... So, but the point being that Mark Sanchez is awesome. Um, though the point being that we got them all flustered. The um, the access that Ali allowed these reporters to have, I think a lot of guys who are writing about it now, uh, look back on those days like I wish it could be that way again. You know, for everybody, it wasn't just that it was Ali, and which was certainly part of it. You know, the most famous athlete on the planet, the greatest heavyweight of all time, the cultural and socio-political and racial significance. It was this guy just said so many incredible things and let you into his world in a way that nobody does now. And I think I feel like got you know a lot of writers who continue to cover sports now or who who bellyache about the way coverage is now. Use hold Ali up as that example of like, well, it was much better when we did it because of a guy like Ali who let us in in a way nobody else did. Well, it's I think you could probably make an argument that he was the first modern athlete in terms Absolutely. of his his recognition of how to build your to steal a buzzword build your brand to build, build your, your brand. brand. Yeah, you know, like and imagine like- Ali with Instagram. And I guess the question is. Is that a pro- do you, would would a Muhammad Ali himself be as accessible nowadays? Because he doesn't need sports writers to get all that out there. He would have his Instagram. He would probably have his own show. He would be doing HBO twenty four seven. And frankly, the money is so much bigger now that a you don't need, you know, the mass right. media. And 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 yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it was just a totally different time. Like think about like, you know, a newspaper sent like the Los Angeles Times sending Jim Murray to Africa for a month to cover the, the the lead up into Ali Foreman in 74, you know, because that was the only way people on the West Coast were going to find out about that fight. You know, there was no ESPN. There was no Twitter. There was none of that stuff. So, you know, it was just a completely different time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, nowadays, you know, he'd have his own Instagram. He'd have his own Twitter feed. And you wouldn't have this ability of media public media outlets to cover him in the same way. They just wouldn't be willing to spend the money to do it. The other thing that's amazing that I've realized just going, and I remember, you know, it was kind of a weird, I, I tweeted something out when Muhammad Ali died, not, not facetiously at all. 
the fact that he was only 74 years old and, and that he was 54 yes. when, when he lit the torch in Atlanta. Because I remember that was like my first introduction to Muhammad Ali. And right around that time, it was almost as if he had died because everyone was kind of writing these Muhammad Ali retrospectives. And like, I mean, all these stories that people are writing now after his death, they were writing back then. Yeah. And, and I just remember, I mean, I'm a 14 year old kid back then, but I just, I just, I mean, there were for for the entire next decade, next twenty years. I there's there would be days, you know, Muhammad Ali's name would come up, and I would have to stop and think if he had died because yeah. it seemed like that. I mean, that's the way that that's how that appearance. It was a lot like Ted Williams at the All Star Game. Yes, you know, where it was almost like, all right, well, here's our last chance to say goodbye to this guy. Right. You know? He was he was almost like a, a category of sports writing in and of itself. If you get the uh, uh, the best American sports writing of the century anthology, the the, the one that you know, purported to go back and pick out the best pieces of sports writing in the 20th century. There's literally a section of the book that is devoted to Ali. I saw uh, that. You know, if you, couldn't, if you couldn't find something interesting to write about while you were covering Muhammad Ali, you should have gotten out of the business. But what I think that's led to now, and I think this happened even before he died, was this kind of, this um, instinct on a lot of writers' part to write something of significance about Ali, right. whether you had any significant experience with him at all. Like, you know, oh, I ran into him at the 7-Eleven yeah. once, or, oh, I watched a, an episode of Ali G on HBO, and therefore let me draw, t- tie that into, you know, Muhammad Ali in some regard. Like, you know, I didn't have any experience with him. I watched him on TV. I, I have no insight into what it was, what he was like or anything like that. I mean, you know, and I think, I think sometimes topics like that come up where people are just like, well, I got to say something about it because... It, all these other people have something interesting yeah. to say, and I should have something interesting. No, to say. our sports editor asked me. We we ran an alley rap, and we're a huge box. I mean, boxing. Yeah. That's the other thing that hits home is just how big boxing used to be. Yes, you know. Um, I mean, when you were the heavyweight champion of the world, you were, you know, you, you were, were LeBron it. James. You were t- yeah, yeah, you were LeBron James. You were, you were Michael yeah, Jordan. You were Michael Jordan, whatever. Um, and you know, we this was a boxing town, and our paper specifically, the Daily News, was was a boxing paper. Yep. Um, you know, a, a lot of these, so we have a lot of these guys who have been around forever in our department who, who they all covered boxing. It's not Matt Breen covered boxing. I love boxing, mm-hmm. but th- I didn't, this is the one thing I wanted to say that you made me think about with Ali and the jumping in bed and all these stories is it seemed like not only are they sad about the coverage, but they're sad. They were close to this guy as a friend. Yes. Because, and this is what I found out from covering boxing versus every other sport I've covered. And I've covered boxing a pretty decent amount of time it's different from every other sport. You're more like, I, I felt that I had a closer connection with Danny Garcia and Brian Jennings. He's Phil and Bernard Hopkins. He's Philadelphia fighters than I ever would have with mm-hmm. any, there's, there's less of a separation of yes. church and state when you go to a boxing gym. Cause you, there's no PR person. You're on their time. They're inviting you to come watch them train and you're going all these places with them. And, and when I'm watching Danny Garcia fight, it's a lot harder to separate that personal thing where I'm in my mind, I'm writing a non-biased story, but I'm rooting for him to win because, because I, I feel like I'm invested. I know him, but when you're at a Phillies game and I grew up a rabid Phillies fan, but it's a lot easier since I got in this field to, to lose that rabidness and be a, a just an observer. It's my friends call me that I'm an observer now with the team. Cause I, I don't have that fanhood connection, but when I'm at a boxing match, it's, it's, I, I know this guy, I know what it took to get to this level. 
And that's how I feel these guys felt with Ali. Two anecdotes with respect to Ali. If you get a chance, read Jerry Eisenberg um, from the New York Star-Ledger's piece. He was a longtime friend of Ali. And to, to piggyback on what you're talking about, this personal connection, he actually stood up in the middle of a fight near the end of Ali's career where Ali was, his skills were completely eroded. Everybody suspects the Parkinson's is starting to set in. And Jerry stands up on press row during the fight and like shouts at either the trainer or the referee. What are you doing? Stop this. Because his... His connection to Ali, they've been friends for so long that he doesn't want to see his friend hurt. The other one was, um, there was a, uh, a clip going around uh, of Billy Crystal. Like, Billy Crystal got introduced to popular culture in America by doing an impression of, a dual impression of Muhammad Ali and Howard Cosell at a roast in 1979, I think. You're, you're smirking. Uh, I, I never heard of the story. Yeah. That, but I'm what's, just laughing at it. Okay. But what's interesting about that is the person who arranged Billy Crystal to do that was Dick Schapp, who was a journalist wow. who had spent all this time writing about and covering Ali. Now, think about that. Suppose you, Matt Breen, had arranged for like you know a comedian to come roast, I don't know, Ryan Howard or Pete McCannon or something like that. Like at the Inquirer and Philly.com and this company, we would look at that like you're violating your journalistic definitely, ethics. Definitely. But the idea that Dick Schapp would do this, and it, and in the end it would turn out to be Billy Crystal. Um, is that on YouTube or anything? Yes. Okay, yeah. I'll check it, it out. I mean, it, it was, I didn't know, I wasn't familiar with the story at all until Mike just said it, but I was, I, I knew Billy Crystal is on, on the list of eulogize yes. Muhammad Ali at his funeral. I heard wow. that the other day and I, I had no idea what the connection was. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. The one thing I, I learned, I guess the, the one thing that that I thought of um, when I uh, just reading about how polarizing the guy was is just how uh, how pro-establishment sports writers were back in the day, and I think probably still are if you actually look at it. Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like it, like they're like people. I mean, uh, uh, Red, uh, not Red Grange, Red Smith, Red Smith wouldn't call him. Would not would not call, would I call him Ali. Would not for call a him while. Muhammad Ali yeah. for a while. And I, and uh, uh, one of the best. Boxing writers of all time, AJ Liebling, mm-hmm. you know, same thing. Just rip, rip the crap out of Ali, even even after he, you know, won, yeah. won at the Olympics, and th- and it was because, you know, it was all because of, you know, I mean, there was some, there was some, you know, there was some institutional racism in there, but sure. there, it was it was also just like this guy. It was just such a weird time. Like like you were still very much in that like 1950s Stepford model where like the country is our. You know, the country is our motherland. True, you know, but by the same token, you also had guys like Bob Lipsight at the Times and Jim Murray with the LA Times who were willing at that, you know, it's the late 60s, early 70s, the tenor of the country is obviously changing. And they moved with those times too. I mean, they were far more, there were writers who were sympathetic to Ali come Right, but 71. I'm saying just the fact, like right now, that would be, the story would be, you know, Muhammad Ali, you know, like I, I just think, feel like he would be, I don't think there would be a lot of people criticizing him necessarily Probably not. the way he was criticized. Probably not. You know, for via, you know, it, he would still get criticized if, you know, yeah, Cam I don't Newton know. It's gets, interesting, but Cam Newton gets no. roasted for and not saying that Cam Newton was right or wrong, but right. he gets roasted for the Super Bowl stuff. God yeah. forbid if an athlete comes out and speaks against this war. Well, yeah, you remember the war in Iraq. Yeah. I mean like the Dixie chicks, we had to, we yeah, had to, we had to, uh, not yeah. buy their st- albums anymore. Which yeah. But the flip side of that is, I, I mean, what, them. you know, the, the difference is, <laughs> Um, You've been boycotting them since. The Dixie yeah. Chick song since. <laughs> <laughs> the difference, of course, is that Ali actually. I mean, you know, people call him a draft dodger. That that is not what he was. I mean, he 
the idea of draft dodging suggests he like went to Canada. He didn't do that. He he dealt with the repercussions of his stance, right. and that's what gave him integrity for doing it. Right, but but I don't know. I think the thing like when you look at his rationale, it makes so much sense. You know, and that's where like kind of the racism comes in, where he's like, dude, you, I live in this country. I can't even get a milkshake at a you know in Birmingham, Alabama, at the white person's counter, and you want me to go, you know. I, I probably have more in common with the guys you're, you know, you're fighting than than with the America yeah. you're trying to defend, and just the fact that like, I don't know, it was just interesting that I think about it a lot when because it makes me uncomfortable when it was interesting when the NFL the whole stuff came out about um, halftime shows, you know, being paid for yeah. by the Department of Defense because it would it would it still makes me uncomfortable like we we our, our sporting events have turned into these like military parades and like I don't you know. What if you don't, I don't think know we, about, I don't know if, I mean, I don't like the fact that the Department of Defense was doing that and that the NFL would enter into that kind of contract, but I don't know they'd become military parades necessarily. I, I think that we can't go through an entire, like, like, I don't know that we need, like, th- that's what they are as commercials, I guess, is what I'm saying. It kind of confirmed what I felt. Like, it, it was almost like these, they get, it gets to a point where, you know, our, you know, we, we put on these commercials for the, the military, which is fine. My brother's a Marine. Like, I have a, I have the utmost respect for the military, but... The fact is, it's almost like this subtle propaganda where in the end, when you look at it, when after the fact you learn that they actually, like the Department of Defense was paying it out of its commercial and marketing budget, mm-hmm. like, okay, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it's it's no, just I, interesting that, that, yes. but like even like our natural reaction is, well, why would you criticize that? You know, it's like, well, well I, think, I don't know. I think part of it, if you could take the, the Department of Defense funding out of it, I do think there's an element of there are so few things that as a culture unite us anymore you know, we're not all watching MASH on Thursday night on whatever network it's on. We're all doing our own thing, you know, and I think teams in certain respects, you know, look for things that are going to unite everybody and it's easy to go to, hey, let's introduce this this soldier or this person who just got back from the right. war and it all, it makes everybody feel good. No matter you support it or not, yeah. you're supporting the person for sacrificing. Oh, I'm not talking about that. Right. I'm, 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 yeah. I'm talking about Again, like, I like the these dip- displays that, that it, I'm not talking about the like the individual, you know, acknowledgments. I'm talking more about the stuff that the Department of Defense was paying. Like, like, yeah, that's, like, that's, like, that's, like, for example, teams, even like teams wearing camo uniforms, yeah, you know, it's yeah. like, it just, there's just like this, like, air of disingenuousness, dis, disingenuity. Yeah. And I have a, I have a bigger issue with like the, the equation that comes like equating that, you know, like I think sports have a inherent value and there are some, you know, there are aspects of particularly football that, um, are similar to military style of things you do, whether it's training or something like that. But to equate the two is right. You know, you can't do that and you shouldn't be doing that. And, you know, you hear that when Kellen Winslow calls himself a warrior and we talk about how brave some of these guys are. Well, he was not, a soldier. Yeah, whatever he was. Soldier? Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. But, like, that's uh, just, yeah. Like, I just think that, like, it, that's, I, I don't know that it... There is a line there that it, that it does get crossed yeah, from time to time. And sure. it's just interesting that that 40 years ago, when you when I was reading some of, like, Liebling's and, and Smith's stuff in response to, to Elise, it was almost like, how could you ever think of, like, not going to fight for your country. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, yeah, because those guys were, I mean, at that time were, what, 15, 20 years removed from World War II and, right. um, you know, you just beat back the Nazis and, and, you know, fascist Japan and all that, so. Right, but that's like an unhealthy way to think because it, it allows you, it allows something like Vietnam to happen. I mean, like. Now we've, now we're really going. No, I'm just yeah. saying like descent, I think, I, I think that any time, when you say uniting, like, 
I don't know. I just think it. I think that's. I think that that's why Muhammad the Muhammad Ali's are good for society because, you know, sure it makes you stop and and question what are we doing? Why are we doing it? All that kind of stuff. Sure, absolutely. Right. Well, we're not. We're we're getting into territory. We're gonna have to have another podcast. On, yes, exactly. Because so like the I'm record gonna to, podcast. Yeah, for yeah. next week, I'm gonna read up on my David Halberstam to. Uh, What's that? You know, What's that? No, but I mean, like, what what would you be reading? Like on? the best of the brightest, and right. you know, just so I can come prepared to discuss Vietnam and more I depth. He his sports books. No, he I'm did write kidding. some. Didn't he write Summer of '49 or whatever? He did a number of sports books. He did the um, uh, what's the name of the one about uh, the Portland Trailblazers? Considered the best book about uh, pro basketball ever written. The Breaks of the Game, I think. Um, but he's more like a narrative guy, isn't he? He's not yeah. like a historian. You should read histo- you should read some like uh, Studs Terkel. I think his last story was an no is Studs Terkel. Right? I know who Studs Terkel is. I've just never read anything by him. Yeah. Yeah. Studs Terkel. Yeah. He's, he's a like famous one of the Chicago great, writer. Yeah. I just can never. Mentor t- to Roger Ebert. Okay. I did not know that actually. Yeah. The Good yeah. War. I'm. I'm. I've. I've. I'm like halfway through his oral history of World War Two. Yeah. Matt, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Anytime. See ya. I gotta bring a fan. In. Oh man, that was good. Thank you guys. Yeah, sure. Thanks for doing. Automatic clock. Yeah. Yeah.